Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And as I've mentioned the last few episodes, we're moving to more of a rotating co-host kind of situation. Um, thankfully, a lot of you seem to like that. I've gotten some messages saying that you like that that um, format. So I'm glad to hear it because I like it too, because it allows me to bring a lot of people back on like Bacha Ungar Sargon. Uh, Bacha is over at Newsweek. You have read her her work there, but she also has a great book that's sitting next to her in the video there called Bad News. Um, which she came on to talk about. And I know she has a new book coming out. I know you have a, a different title. You're still workshopping the title because there was a, she wrote something about the American dream and the working class in America. But uh, why don't you say what, what happened with the title? Are you allowed to say? Yeah, I think so. No one's told me not to. Um, so when I first wrote the proposal and was thinking about the book, in my mind, I was calling it Unpromised Land because I felt like the American compact had been broken with the working class, namely, you know, you work hard and you should be able to achieve the American dream. And it seemed to me that the kind of upper middle class elites were had become sort of hoarders of the American dream and um, working class people were working harder than ever and yet had a, a, an increasingly small chance of being able to achieve the stability of a middle class life. And as I reported the book, I found that things were... Um, more complicated than I had initially thought. There were many Americans who were working class who had achieved the American dream, although not nearly as many as there should be. There was also the kind of deaths of despair corners of the working class. And I just found that the picture was a lot more complex than I had thought. And so we decided to call the book Promised Land. Um, but then this war broke out in Israel. And I started to think that people would think the book was about Israel. Um, I mean, to me as an American Jew, this is my promised land, you know, the United States. But um, because I sort of talk a lot about Israel and, you know, have expertise in that area as well, and might one day want to write a book about Israel, um, we decided that we should probably change the title. So we do have a new title. And the new title, I think, is better than the first two options. Um, and I'm very excited about it. And the book is now called Second Class, How the Elites Betrayed America's Working Men and Women, which is exactly what the book is about. Well, um, it's actually the subject that people would have associated your book with if you would call it Promised Land that I'm, I'm having you on to talk about today. Um, or though more precisely, perhaps we are talking about uh, America as well, because um, I really wanted to have this discussion with you in particular, Bacia, because I think this is something we um, agreed on for a long time, and then I'm less certain on now, mm. and you seem to still be certain about, and that is the future of anti-Semitism in, in the United States. Um, and and the point of agreement, I think, was um, I, I've long actually felt that uh, sort of, for sure, painting the, the American people, um, especially like average Americans, and particularly Christian Americans, as somehow anti-Semitic has always been extremely unfair. It's It's been a charge that has been confined for the most part um, to a certain type of, of leftist, right, that has had this, this very low vision of what the average American actually is. You know, he's just a bigot. Um, and among those various bigotries, uh, anti-Semitism has found its place. And, and, and to be very frank about it, this is something um, this is a view that's quite common among liberal Jews, um, as as well as the left more broadly, right? Um, and I've I've always found that view to be just completely factually incorrect, based on based on basically every poll that's ever been taken, as well as the behavior of of um, what might be called heartland Americans towards Israel and towards Jewish Americans. I've always thought that was actually quite ungrateful. Um, 
to to think this way, to talk this way. Uh, and I, I found it to be very insulting uh, to my fellow Americans. That being said, I still believe all those things. Um, the In the last four or five weeks, we have seen this, this resurgent and much more open anti-Semitism um, that seems to be acceptable. Uh, and we've seen it in the streets and we've seen it among, you know, elected officials, very high ranking officials in the Democratic Party. Um, we've also seen it in some very popular uh, right wing figures. And I, at this point, I would say, like, I think that what Tucker Carlson, you know, in Tucker Carlson's interview with Candace Owens, for example, does very carefully skirt around um, some of her uh outside of that interview, very like to me, blatantly anti-Semitic statements. So um, you seem to still have maintained that you are not worried, uh, particularly worried, let's say, about going forward as an American Jew. And you're not really worried about anti-Semitism in America. You still think that it's it's a remote possibility and that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be hysterical and we shouldn't copy the left and sort of whining about being unsafe and so on. Um, is that a fair sum summation of your position? And then uh, maybe go ahead and um, elaborate on it a bit. Yeah, um, definitely. I think it's um, a slander against this great nation, like you said, to suggest that anti-Semitism has the possibility of gaining a foothold in the way that it has and does and continues to in Europe, um, based both on our past and our present Um I agree with you completely about the slanderous nature of the way the left talks about Christians. Um, they have some invented narrative about end of days to explain why Christians are so pro-Israel when you can go into any church in America and they will all tell you the same thing, which is, you know, the Jews are the apple of God's eye. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the long and the short of it. And um, that is part of their religious belief. And it, maybe there is some end of times vision that is, you know, in the book of revelations and whatnot, but that does not, that is not an animating feature of their support for Israel and their philo-Semitism. And the working class in America, by and large, those who are, even those who are not Christian, um, they're just deeply, deeply tolerant people who are extremely proud of their tolerance. And being tolerant is a deep, deep, deep abiding component of their identity. And they've simply never been taught to see Jews as the enemy in the way that the working class in Europe have for millennia um, by, you know, uh, opportunistic demagogues. Um, and in Europe, they also have this problem of mass migration um, where they've brought in, you know, millions and millions of migrants from countries that have a culture built around anti-Semitism, where their political upheavals have always centered around anti-Semitism and have always had a, an anti-Semitic component, certainly since 1948. So we just don't have that. I, I, I live in a neighborhood that's full of Muslims. I wear an enormous Jewish star. I mean, we there's the idea that in Brooklyn, Jews and Muslims would have anything except the kind of lovely relationship that, you know, two middle class communities that just want to coexist would have is is unthinkable to me. And it's not I'm not a person who hides my, you know, and I, I I've been checking in on all of my very orthodox, ultra orthodox Haredi Hasidic friends about what's going on in their communities. You know, I can maybe, you know, Maybe somebody wouldn't notice my star, wouldn't know I'm Jewish, but they can't hide their Jewishness. Um, I've been checking in with the women in my synagogue who wear shaitals, who wear wigs, who are very obviously Jewish. And I've been hearing just a lot of actually really nice stories 
about people saying nice things to them. And yes, there's the odd comment here and there. But, you know, the argument for feeling unaf- for feeling afraid or for feeling insecure as Jews is that you're seeing this like wellspring of support for Palestinians and for Hamas. And you're seeing this hatred of Israel bubbling up in all of these, you know, tens of thousands of people marching and the people on these elite college campuses. And surely that is going to lead to violence against Jews. But it hasn't. I mean, it's been six, seven weeks and there have been a, a, a handful of less than five actual physical um, events in which a Jewish person was physically attacked for being Jewish. And I think that the whole point of this country is that there's a difference between violence, physical violence and speech. I mean, we, we literally don't believe in the, the category of hate speech in this country. That's the whole purpose of the First Amendment, which is the whole purpose of this country. So to me, it's sort of like, it would be one thing if it was actually incitement. If you were seeing these protests and these speech acts and this graffiti and whatever, what have you, what is the uptick in, you know, anti-Semitic stuff that is there, I'm not denying it, um, but you're not seeing it translate into physical violence. What you are seeing is the elites of the left, of the far left, and the elites of the far right um, resorting to anti-Semitism in the way that the elites in this country always get everything wrong, you know, and the way that they're always trying to support ra- racism, whether it's the anti-racist form of racism on the left or the racist form of, you know, the obsession with genetics and 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 race and IQ on the right. That that is that is to me an inherent part of being part of the American elites. And it is completely in contrast with how the vast majority of Americans see themselves. There will just never, to me, to my mind, and maybe this is naive, but like you said, I feel such immense gratitude to this country. Like I just, until I see incontrovertible proof that I'm wrong, I'm going to keep saying this because it seems to me that there is no evidence for it. And it is the language of the elites to demand the cry bully mentality of demanding a level of safety is completely um, uh, corresponds with the level of your privilege on the left. And so I just hate to see Jews um, adopting that language as if the problem with intersectionality is that they didn't rank Jews high enough on the oppression scale. That is not the problem with it. The problem with it is that they rank people based on oppression at all. And the point of being a Jew in this moment is to stand up and say no to that. So let me... uh start out with a couple things that I do agree with you on um, and we will get to the disagreement because um, I, I think it's really starting to come together in terms of what why I, I where I depart from you but one I do think the history of America is very different from the history of Europe specifically in this regard actually a, a friend of mine a colleague um, wrote to me to say because last time on one of these podcasts I said there's never been a pogrom in America he classified Crown Heights the Crown Heights riots as something close to a pogrom I think that's Mm, it's arguable, um, but it, it, it's a pogrom it's, needs um, to be state sanctioned. I mean that right. That's the difference. There, there will always be miscreants, right? There will always yeah. be crime, and and miscreants will hate groups of different. It was a racial riot. Um, it was a race it was riot. A racial yeah. riot. But yeah. I, I, I agree with yeah. you. I think the the key factor here one is the bloodiness of of the pogroms, and <clears throat> which as bloody as for by American standards, this this race riot in Crown Heights was. Um, I, I don't think that it rises to the, the level of like, uh, you know, villages burned and, and so on. Um, 
But second, I think the state sanction or at least tacit sanction <clears throat> is very, very important. Um, and so, yeah, for, for those two reasons, I don't really classify it as a pogrom. But like, let's say um, that that leaving some some incidents aside, America does not have a have a history of this kind of like anti-Jewish organized and sanctioned violence the way that European states do. Um, and I, th- I also agree with you that th- it comes from a very different place in America to the extent that there is an anti-Semitic threat in America. Um, it doesn't come from below. So in Europe, it, it did tend to be, you know, um, working classes or or uh, if you go back far enough into the, you know, 1800s and 1700s, you would call it the peasantry, right? Um that held very anti-Semitic attitudes for a variety of reasons, right? I mean, this is like sort of this perennial question. Why, why the Jews? Like why, why uh, continually are Jews hated, um, you know, partially because of their success in terms of financial success or, or um, otherwise success within these societies, partially because of, of there is more of the, the sort of old Christian idea in, in European countries that uh, the Jews killed Jesus and, and um, that they've rejected, you know, the, of course, I'm, I'm kind of stumbling over my words here because I don't want to say, of course, like Jews reject Jesus by definition, but there's much more tolerance uh, for those religious differences and that they're not taken with the same kind of like centuries long um, hatred here. Um, I do think we have like a more mercantile sort of tolerant uh, ethos that that you pointed to, not to mention a very long history of, of religious liberty. Um, buttressed by by George Washington's letter to the Jewish congregations, right, um, all the way back in the founding of America. So Jews, Jews have existed as a very uh, protected minority um, in America from from the beginning, and and despite there being some anti-Semitic discrimination on the level of you know not not uh, you know kind of quotas in universities, uh, certainly nothing that's not happening to Asians today. Um, in universities, there isn't this sort of bloody anti-Semitic uh, history in America. So all of that um, is to say that I, I, I agree with your assessment of what uh, Gad Saad called Roscoe, which I got, I, he blocked me on Twitter, by the way, um, this Canadian sort of IDW anti-woke type guy, um, because he was essentially repeating this um, canard that actually, you know, that, that anti-Semitism comes in, in a variety of types, but but one of the types that we should be worried about is what he called Roscoe, right, in Arkansas. Um, and and I, I just simply don't think that's true. That's true. Yeah, like on, on every polling measure and my experience, like yours, um, working around very religious Christians, um, is that they, they are... Uh, very philosemitic and and for the reasons you state and and not for these astrological astrological reasons um about the end of the world that are always written about but for the more simple religious reason that they recognize the common root uh, between Judaism and Christianity in some way and they and think that God just, favors the Jews. I just want to add a little bit to that. It's it's actually it's it's astonishing how little they <clears throat> hate Jews and how little they hold it against Jews that Jews overwhelmingly choose the party that they Christians see as like the Antichrist. I mean, so it goes beyond just tolerance, um, religious liberty, not hating Jews and not developing any kind of resentment over, you know, being totally willing to say they are the chosen people and we have to support them in that. Right. Like, but that, these people, if you ask them to talk about Democrats, they will speak about that. Many of them believe like 
QAnon adjacent, you know, they believe that the Democrats are godless, evil people adjacent to or pedophiles, that they are groomers, that they are like the worst thing you can possibly be. But then when when they find out you're Jewish, they'll say to you with kind of like real pain and real tolerance, like, please explain why the Jews, God's chosen people, vote for these people. Like they won't even hate them despite knowing that 70% of American Jews vote for Democrats. Like it's a real, it's what we call in my, my in our, what our people call a Mila. Like it's a really, really something psychological and emotional is happening to combat their ability to see Jews the way they see all other Democrats. And that is like, That is a huge, huge thing that I encountered again and again and again. And of course, the answer is very simple, which is that the number one predictor for whether a person is a Democrat is whether they have a college degree. And Jews are overwhelmingly college educated. I mean, that is the number one reason why they vote for Democrats. There's nothing else there. It has nothing else to do with. I'm not sure I I agree. I'm not sure I agree with that. So I've been asked the same question. I I used to, you know, I used to work with the Tea Party a lot. Work by work, I mean volunteer, um, you know, organized with the Tea Party. It was my political sort of awakening or whatever. Um, and I also got these these questions from the sweetest, usually like Tea Party grandmas, right? Um, and they would ask me very sincerely, like, why do the Jews vote Democrat, you know? Um, and, and the questions were usually connected to, you know, like Obama doesn't like Israel or... Right. Um, and and uh, I told told them that my answer was a little different from yours. It was kind of simple. We said because they're liberal, right? <laughs> um, I, I I do think that, that that in America specifically, and we can talk a longer history, but in America specifically, um, there are very strong ties not just between the Democratic Party and and the majority of Jews, but also between this liberal ethos, which. I mean, to be most charitable to it, I think uh, they they still associate, I think, exactly because of the thing that we agree on and, and they don't. You know, they, they they sort of fear the most charitable explanation I have is that they they really do sort of fear anything. So they, they are very susceptible to this language of like universality, <clears throat> universality and tolerance um, and the need to include. Right. As much as possible to. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Um to, to include and, and be tolerant of as many groups as possible because their thinking is, you know, um, if, if we move away from that, then then we are at risk, right? That we are this perpetual right, hated right. minority and right. therefore these kind of, and, and it's funny because sometimes uh, on the right, I hear the accusation that, you know, Jews are, that liberal Jews are essentially ethno-narcissists, right? Or, or ethno, like they, they, they are, um, they, they, they are allegiance, their allegiance is only to Jews and <clears throat> therefore that's why, they, they um, you know, support open borders at home and um, closed borders in Israel. Well, the, the reality, at least the reality that I've encountered is the opposite, that these are Jews who are the least ethno-narcissistic yeah. um, are to the point sometimes of suicidality totally. and that they often support those same liberal principles in Israel. Totally. It's just that that wing of, of politics has totally died out in Israel via contact with reality, right? Like they, they just right. cannot... In Israel, Jews can't support the same kind of policies um, as their liberal brethren would like in in America because in that case they just have their heads chopped off, right? Um, so it's more that than than what is is I think often given us the explanation. But in any case, I I, I do think like this comes down to where you think this threat is, and I agree with you that it's not coming 
from the place that you're saying it's not coming from, right? Right. My my disagreement is, you know, like many other things, I, I'm sorry about you, but the working class doesn't rule America, right? Um, totally. So, I totally agree with you. you I know, mean, yeah, so that's, there, the, there that's is the problem with danger. America. <laughs> there is a real danger because when you look at the polling of, of young people, I hope you can't hear my cat, but... Um, when you look at polling of particularly college educated young people and you look at the the kind of um, viral moment that Osama bin Laden is getting, right? Um, I, I think we have spent a generation and a half indoctrinating people and not just in university, it starts in K-12, right? Um, with a, with a, an, a worldview that is uh, not just anti-Jewish and potentially anti-Semitic, definitely anti-Israel, um, but but more importantly, here at home is anti-American, sees America as in the West as uh, evil civilizations, and that therefore these narratives, um, when they first encounter some some you know idiocy like Bin Laden's letter, this is the first time that they've ever um, read this letter because they don't, they are historically ignorant, right? But but second of all, they are primed. I don't believe it's just because of TikTok and the CCP pushing it and all this stuff, which is all true. But I think they've been primed since a young age to accept because the root of it is the same, that America is the bad guy here, that the West is the bad guy, that Israel is the bad. Like this kind of Western civilization that we do share um, is itself a, a constant excuse and was built on oppression and violence and slavery, right? And and that there is nothing to be proud of in it. And that therefore, when they hear our, our enemies, whether that's Hamas or Osama bin Laden, right? Um, or for that matter, you know, uh, any other of America's geopolitical foes, okay, they they take as, um, it sounds very reasonable to them, because they already think that we're the bad guys. So they're like, oh, here's an, just a reasonable person explaining why they too hate America. And, and it blows their minds because they're like, oh, we've been wrong about this too, right? Yeah. But that's, so who is the they there? I think that's where we're disagreeing. Like to me, the they there is, it's not even like the 30% of Americans who have a college degree. And it's not even, it's, it's the ones who go to these elite universities and stew in America hatred and anti-Semitism. So it's like the kind of people who end up becoming like AOC, right? That's the, the career trajectory. You go to a university, <clears throat> you end up surrounded by people who hate America and hate Israel and hate the Jewish people. And then you end up kind of in, but even in Congress, right? It's, it's such a tiny, tiny, tiny minority because it's not mainstream, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not mainstream. It's, it's, um, I think it's and it's very mainstream. I, I, I mean, so this is, this is, this is, uh, um, the crux, I think of the disagreement. Uh, I see the same revolutionary fervor, in this as in any other institution, right? When you have 500 staffers in the Democratic Party, you know, signing this letter that it's all Israel's fault, right? When you have Obama as the most anti-Israel president, I think, since the creation um, of, of the state of Israel in America, um, be exactly because he is this, to my mind, he was the first new left president, this 1968-style left wing. To me, it would be very... Um, foolish to imagine that the same thing won't happen on this question and that 70-30, you know, uh, favor towards Israel in American polling will not pass along the generations. Um, we didn't pass that to the next generation, right? We, we didn't pass that to younger millennials and we didn't pass it to Gen Z. They don't have the same basis 
as and even the ones who did not go to college and or will not go to college. Okay, it like I said, this is very much ensconced in. I mean, if you pick up a random textbook in an American high school for the last twenty or thirty years, it has been anti-American. Right, it, it, the American textbooks are a parade of the sins of America. Right, the the like the proportion. I remember when I was reading uh, my APUSH, right, APUS history textbook. Um, it's not that we shouldn't talk about the things that America has done wrong, but there were two chapters on World War II, right, this sort of pinnacle of American power and and the easiest of just wars, right, to justify morally. Two chapters on World War II. One of them is about Japanese internment. If, if I were to write a history of America's conduct in World War II, you know, in, let's say, let's say there were a hundred chapters, you know, then I would give one chapter to Japanese internment, right? And not because I don't think it was, it was a wrong and an evil, but there's no proportion at all. And for decades already, um, in, in American education that to show what's good about this civilization, and I, yes, I agree with you that if Americans understand what's good about American civilization and about ourselves, then I'm very confident that they will continue to be not anti-Semitic and to support Israel. But I am very much not confident in the first part of that premise. And I've seen institution after institution after institution fall to this ideology. And, and you're, you're saying basically, well, but this, this thing will hold. And I, I just, I, I don't have that confidence. I, I don't know anything about um, high school textbooks, but I do know that the vast majority of Americans are still very patriotic, including the vast majority, over 70 percent of black Americans. So whatever they're learning in their textbooks, it's not um, percolating. It's not sticking. Um, and I think that, you know, polling of young people. I don't really take it seriously because young people grow up and it's true that in some of the polls, we're seeing that, you know, millennials are less conservative. There's less of that kind of, <clears throat> you grow up, you get a mortgage, you become normal. <laughs> like there's less of that happening um, with millennials than there have, than there was with boomers or with Gen X. Um, but I, I still just think that the, the, when you see the hatred for these instit the same institutions you hate, most Americans hate, and that's going to limit their influence and their impact I think, for example, if you look at Hollywood, right, Hollywood undeniably has gotten more left. It's undeniably become much less friendly to Jews. It's become a place that, you know, makes multi-million dollar deals with somebody like President Obama, who, as you said, and you probably knew this when he was president. I didn't. I was a lot stupider than you back then. Um, you know, uh, clearly has a real problem with Jews in Israel. Um, but Hollywood also now is becoming niche because they produce stuff that nobody wants to watch. And I guess like it's just a kind of commitment I have um, to the power of the good heartedness of the American people. And again, like the it does seem to me that there is a lot of evidence that when the elites become evil and crazy, um, the, 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 the people um, turn on the elites and they turn on the institutions. And you're seeing a lot of that, just like total, total um, um, distrust of American institutions from like the vast majority of Americans, you know, like the media, like the numbers of people who trust the media is down to the like, it's, it's to the teens, right? So that's not even just like one side, right? That's just like the vast majority of people know that this institution is dead. 
Um, so I think that that for me is, I, I just, uh, probably cause I'm an optimist, probably cause I'm a bit of a Pollyanna and because I feel so grateful to this country and so committed to its success. I, to me, the thing that is most apparent is the support and seeing people get marginalized for having this sort of like pro-terrorist view that even someone like Barack Obama um, was voicing. But, you know, he's not the president anymore. And it's like, it's funny to say, well, that's not mainstream about someone who was the president. But what is he now? I mean, he's like a he's a person who has a deal with Netflix, right? Like that's that's like that's who he is. And so I I feel like um, I just don't I I, I feel like it, the evil embedded in these institutions is becoming really, really apparent. And the left is picking its side in a way that is making it irrelevant to the future of this great nation. So I guess a few things. One, I, I do think you are being Pollyannish about the picture. Um, you know, and and so you can say like, I don't study the textbooks, um, but what we what we teach does matter, you know, like uh, here, here I will quote Reagan, you know, freedom's not passed from one generation to the next in the bloodstream, right? It, it has to be, civilization is not the natural state of man. Um, it has to be maintained. There has to be something told to the next generation, something Jews know very well, right? Um, there has to be a story told to the next generation um, that perpetuates those exact instincts that I agree with you, the average American has, but those instincts didn't come from nowhere, right? They didn't come from like, just because this particular random group of genetically selected people have them, right? Um, they came from an ethos and a civilization that was built around certain folkways, certain culture, certain, you know, principles, certain commitments. Um, and, and they won't endure uh, without it, you know, like, so out of out of the top 100 school districts, which encompass a huge percentage, right, of school children, I forget the exact percentage, but the largest 100 school districts in America, that's basically all of the urban, large urban school districts, that that is the probably, I can't remember if it's, it's a, a flat majority, but it's probably close to it, right, that encompass in terms of, of kids learning. Not a single one of them contains the words patriot or patriotism or American citizenship in their mission statements. It is verboten to say something like, oh, the purpose of American public education is to create American citizens who are patriots and able to participate in this great civilizational project that America has started. That is not what our education system has taught. And it, it's not a recent thing. It didn't happen in 2020. Right. Um, these are changes that were decades in the making. Um, and so and not consequently, you know, patriotism, you talk about it like most Americans are still patriots. Yeah. But when you break it down by age, they're not. Right. If it, we have a, a if you look at polls of, of people under 30, uh, under 40 and then under 30, you see a minority of people being being very proud to be an American. For example. Yeah, but they'll they'll grow up. And I, I to me, the there is a kind of innate culture in America of tolerance. And I think that the real evidence for that is like the fact that if you look at the views of of the average American, like the views that sort of um, pertain for the vast majority of Americans, um, they're not they don't like neither party or neither set of messages coming down the pike has defined them. So, for example, like the vast majority of Americans overwhelmingly support gay marriage, but are really, really don't want to see trans people competing in trans women competing in women's sports, right? 
they 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 want to see trans people be protected from discrimination, but they really don't want to see them in women's bathrooms. Like nobody taught them that. That's simply like the there is a kind of innate good heartedness about where the American public finds itself frequently. Um, but but Batya, in two thousand, the vast majority of Americans were opposed to gay marriage. That's right. So twenty years ago. So so. This is a fluctuating thing. You're building a, a castle on something that's leaving aside the the rightness or wrongness of gay marriage. I'm saying, like you're building a castle on a, a foundation of sand, right? Public opinion is influenced. That that like inherent goodness of Americans is not a magical thing that is is uh you know reinforced every generation by virtue of of blood, right? Like. It's no, it's, it's a taught. consensus that the good-hearted culture of the United States of America arrives at in each generation and we are very lucky to live in this country because in every generation it has gotten more tolerant and yet it never goes crazy in the way that the left would want it to. Like it has just been this steady, calm, consensus-driven a, um, a drive towards a more tolerant society, but not one that undermines individual liberties, not one that undermines um, the rights of children, the rights of women. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's astonishing. All the, all the, the terms that you're using, the definitions are not just changing, but contradictory over time. You can't just pull and say like, Oh, this is public opinion at this given moment. And therefore it's it's good. I I don't I, I just I I think I'm like you. I'm very grateful. I think Americans have very good instincts, but I don't think that will perpetuate in in you know some magical way if if the civilization itself fails to perpetuate them in like a purposeful way, right? So it's it's not going to, to forget yeah, about I don't the I don't believe people coming in from the outside but but I don't it, I don't believe that like the elites create a civilization and pass it down to the people like I'm against that I think that that's nonsense so I, I, I yeah you're right about, like, do, you think, like, do you think do you think that that uh you know school teacher is elite like that's that's the I'm not saying that there's some small group of people who's who's like forcing it down people's throats from above I'm saying that a, a civilization and a culture, actually, I think it is at least partially ground up, but these these are learned ways of living that can be unlearned. Like like the, the tolerance that you're talking about, I think in, in large part springs from a kind of, um, you know, <laughs> mercantilism or, or, or um, mercantile style society where people are tolerant because they trade. And, and this idea that like in every trade, there are two winners um, but that's not a that's not a, a global idea, right? There are many and, and, and there are many human beings, just as human as us, that don't accept this idea that, that that don't think about the world in those terms. So we can't conclude that it's just going to perpetuate. It hasn't perpetuated in most of history and in most of the world. So the question is, why has America been different? And to me, the answer has been because there are certain civilizational commitments. That, that we've made. Um, and, and I'm even, you know, I guess I'm more right wing. And I, I, I do think that like lately, I think maybe those commitments are not so extric inextricable from a very long history of essentially folkways, right? That it's, it's difficult to extract it and like plop it down somewhere that, that you, you can't just take these, uh, 
these these principles, the bare ideas and plop them out somewhere. But that that even like sidestep the entire is America a proposition nation or is it is it like a folkways and a people? Okay, even either way, it has to be perpetuated, whichever one of those bases you come down on. Right. Um, it has to be perpetuated in some purposeful way. It won't just maintain itself. And and what I've yeah, seen. But you're, the only is- thing you're disagreeing with me about is whose job it is to perpetuate it. I'm saying that parents have done an amazing job perpetuating it to their children. And you're saying, no, the institutions have to be in charge of that. And I totally reject that. So yeah, I, we disagree about that. I don't want institutions to be in charge of telling my children what to believe or perpetuating my values and my views. I want every parent to be in charge of that. And I think that the evidence shows that in this country, they have done a stupendous job of it. And so I, yeah, I don't, care that the institutions are not capable of conveying what it means to be an American. I don't think it's their job. I think that's the job of regular people. And I think that all of the you you agree with me that the evidence shows that a lot of that has been successful. Despite no, no I, I, I don't agree with books. you that the evidence shows that. Uh, I think the evidence shows that that it had been up to a certain point. And now that we have, a, you know, at least 30 years of it being unsuccessful, that's what every poll and that's also what I observe. When I, you know, talk to people and walk around in the country, so, um, no, I, I first of all, I don't agree that the evidence shows that, and and two, there, there are, we are not these like individual, you know, specks floating in. There, there is such a thing as society and culture, and institutions are part of that. It's not doesn't have to be completely top down. I'm not saying again that it has to be like the the richest five percent of Americans decide what everybody else you know teaches in their homes. That's that's uh, you know that's a straw man. That's not how institutions are built or perpetuated. But it's also not true that you know you you raise a child in a complete vacuum created only by you and your family, right? That child, unless you homeschool, which I'm very much in favor of, right? Um, but even then, right? You, actually, Reagan does a great job of laying this out when in his warning, in his farewell speech, when he leaves, he says, you know, there were all of these layers essentially to this endorsement of the idea that um, the American project is good. And so he said, of course, the first place that my generation, meaning the silent generation, right, learned this um, was in, in our homes because our parents taught us this. But then we also went to school and the school taught us about American history and about, you know, (laughs) <laughs> and about Tripoli and, and the American Marines and our performance in World War II. And we were, we knew that we were right to be proud of being American, that this was a great civilization, right? And and then if we had bad teachers or we didn't pay attention in school, okay, and we didn't have parents who taught us this, then even pop culture, right, even Hollywood, even the TV shows that we watched, you know, on, on our, our, you know, Saturday morning cartoons all reinforced this idea, Right. So even if if our parents failed to teach it to us or our schools or we didn't pay attention to our parents or our schools. Right. Or we rebelled against them. um, Then, you know, we we had this sense of community, all of all of these institutions, because that's what they are. Right. Family, church, you know, um, schools uh, and and pop culture. um, All of these things are institutions and they were all reinforcing the same idea. And and one by one, those institutional supports have fallen away. And yes, what you have now is is essentially the job of of little units where where if if, for example, if I had a child and I wanted to raise that child to be a patriotic American in in the understanding that I have of that, those terms, I would have to knock down almost every mainstream thing that my child sees on a regular basis, right? I would have to homeschool. 
I would have to um, prevent until an age of, of, of sort of understanding and ability to, to deal with different ideas in, in a mature way. I would have to like block out 90% of what's, what's said on the news, what's, you know, taught in, in, um, school, what's, uh, you know, shown on TV, what's, what's, uh, now, you know, what's, what's being scrolled on TikTok, right? Um, I would have to block out all of that on, that is not a sustainable, like you, <laughs> that's a remnant. That's a remnant of people who believe something so strongly. And again, to loop this conversation back to anti-Semitism and Jews, right? That's a remnant of people who, who believe in something so strongly that they can pass it on uh, to the exclusion of, of every other influence in their society as essentially a permanent minority, as an island in a sea. But that's not America. Um, I think a healthy distrust of institutions is a very inherent part of American history. And one I approve of. <laughs> I mean, again, institutions are filled with people who went to elite universities where they those universities have always taught people nonsense, at least since we imported French postmodernism. So I just don't I don't I don't need the future of this country to depend on these totally corrupt institutions. I just don't I don't accept that. I don't accept that that's how we perpetuate our culture. I think we've done a really good job independent of these corrupt institutions. And, you know, mostly what's happened is that the corruption has become more apparent and more visible because it's not like they were so much better, like, you know, so many years ago. So I think that it's, yeah. Our schools I, certainly were better. Forget about universities for a second, because I also don't believe that the the, the future of, of America hinges on what's taught in universities. Uh, not that I'm, I'm as blase as you are, I think, about how much it matters what's taught in universities because what the elite believes does matter and it, it does come out in our politics, as you know very, very well, and a lot of things that you fight against, right? Um, but but even laying aside, you know, yes, I might agree with you in the narrow sense about, in, about the institution of universities, but you can't say that we don't need any other institutions. All of these things, I mean, the family itself is an institution that is, you know, not coming together in the way that it did 60 years ago, right? We have many more people who are, you, you just said, like, it's it's reliant on on teaching the instincts within the family. But, you know, a lot of people are being born who don't know. They're, they don't even know their mother or their father, right? Like, usually their father. But each one of these things is an institution. You can't say that mistrust, it's not American to mistrust any and all institutions. It's American to mistrust certain forms of overreaching government. There's even a sort of healthy populism in America that starting with you know, that guy, Andrew Jackson, right, that has, has come in uh, in successive waves when, when it feels like, you know, elite consensus has gotten too far from the wisdom of the people, right? I, all of these things I can agree with you on, but what you're you're talking about now is like, no, like, what do you consider institution, I guess, would be the question. Well, certainly not the family, because I started by saying that that's where values should be perpetuated. And so I don't really consider the family an institution. It is terrible that there's been the breakdown of the family and the working class in America, and that has to be ameliorated immediately. I think, by and large, working class Americans are incredibly, incredibly good, tolerant people whose values are very close to the values that this great nation was founded on. And what we need to do is get out of their way and make them have a bigger voice. The problem is that 
our entire public sphere and all of our public policy is decided by people who went to these extremely corrupt universities and who now reign all of the basically all of the institutions in America. And that is the problem. And what we need to do to combat that is to empower the people who inherently due to some the grace of God and the culture of this great nation have managed to sustain good American values, despite all of these institutions telegraphing to them that they shouldn't have them. So that's my view is we need to fix the economy so that those people have the kind of stability that makes their voice matter. Because of course, you know, every revolution started with the stability of the middle class and purchasing power of the middle class, which has been totally eroded in this country. You know, people have either dropped down to the bottom or you have this very empowered institutional upper middle class elite, you know, the top, you know, quintile who have all of the political power and all of the over 50 percent of GDP belongs to the top 20 percent. It's not the top one percent. And, and make all the decisions and they run the institutions. And I'm just not invested in saving the institutions from them because it's always going to be that way. I mean, the elites are always inherently corruptible and corrupt. And the problem right, so is, you, is you that think only elites are corruptible. You don't think the human heart is corruptible. This is the this is the root of you, you, you think that that there is nothing that could corrupt the heart of the average American. Well, like I said, for some reason, they have they've they are incredibly resistant. Let's just take to anti-Semitism, despite everything, be all of the ingredients being there to make them anti-Semitic, and they were totally, totally uncorruptible on that front. Though everybody is telling them to hate Jews on the left and on the right, in the elites, and yet, yeah, I do think that there is some. I don't know what it is. It's a God-given. It is. This is the greatest country on earth. This is this country is the promised land. They have resisted that despite everything. Yeah, I do think that. And I don't understand it. And I feel very grateful for it. I mean, I so to the extent I agree with you, I mean, like, leaving aside even something like anti-Semitism, I mean, sh yes, the, the American people are capable of, of deviating sharply from the course set by, by elites. And they've shown that over and over and over again. Um, I, I don't know that I, I agree First of all, I, I think that that institutions do shape what you you think of as this this instinct, right? They do shape it over time. Now, it's not an like an immediate thing, um, and and a population might be more or less resistant to being shaped that way. I think Americans are pretty resistant to being shaped that way. I agree with you that that's a remarkable thing, um, but that it's not it's not true that uh they're first of all that they're never shaped that way and in fact a lot of the things that you point to are like for example gay gay marriage right that that you pointed to as this like very clearly the opinion of american populations again whether it's right or wrong were shaped by elite opinion on this I there, totally there was resistance right up until the law was changed that, that that so all the way up until over oh, oh I wish somebody with an easier pronounceable name had been the person who decided to sue but Obergefell Obergefell <laughs> um, right up until then right you had even in California which was very liberal right um, you had a, a strong majority against gay marriage in in two thousand eight right so what is it that you think that massively changed public opinion, do you think that Americans were less tolerant in 2007 than they are 
and and they just they they recognized this that they were going to become more magnanimous and tolerant uh between 2007 and and you know basically like you know 2010 that just seems it seems like a very artificial timeline no what what obviously happened was that people started to get married and they started to realize how many gay people they actually knew and that is what changed public opinion in fact when i you know toured the country writing my book I met a lot of people who were deeply, deeply religious who said to me, you know, it's against my religion. I personally don't support it, but I have a gay person in my life, whether it's a daughter or a neighbor or a son or a friend, and I want them to be happy. And all I want is for them to be treated with dignity and to get married and find a nice person and to live a nice middle class life. And no, it wasn't true before that because what happened was people started coming out and getting married. And so somebody who wouldn't have known that their coworker was gay, suddenly their coworker was married to a person of the same sex. And so it became much more- California in 2007, not, you know, uh, medieval peasants or something. Like California in 2007, I assure you, people were gay, like openly so. Right. Like it's not that everyone suddenly discovered. Yeah, I'm telling you someone. what people told me about why they changed their minds on gay marriage. You can call them liars. That's fine. But like this is what people have told me about why they changed their minds, because they knew they're lying. I'm saying that the, the, out the connection and got married. Tolerance, the connection between tolerance of their their gay friends and family. And I, I, in fact, think that tolerance existed in 2007, but it wasn't connected to the specific idea of gay marriage, right? That same person that you talked to would have said, yes, I want my daughter to live a happy life, but I, you know, it makes me sad that she's, she's not, you know, going to be able to, to have, you know, to have, to get married and to have children because she's, you know, has these inclinations or whatever. I don't know how they would have said it because I'm trying to replicate an argument that really isn't mine. I, I voted sometimes regret. Now I regret, but I voted for gay marriage in 2008. Okay. But, um, the, the point that I'm saying is like, I, I don't think that, that they became more like somehow beforehand, they didn't know that they had all these these family members and stuff who are gay. They knew that and they were tolerant, but that tolerance had a different form, right? It would have a different, the same woman would have told you. Um, yes, there was a shift in a consensus. Like that's where did that come exactly from? right. Where, like, where did that come from? The shift in consensus. It came from their loved ones being able to take advantage of an institution that they approve of deeply and did not associate beforehand with these people who were gay and they now do and they want them to have that access to that i feel like we're saying the same thing from two different perspectives i said that that why okay so why did they have access to that that was an elite phenomenon batia that was one day that institution was closed and the next day it was open and that changed what people thought about it but that the, the, the open and closing was a top-down phenomenon. But you're saying you voted for it, right? No, no. Well, I voted for it. Uh, I lost that vote. Um, the the California in 2008 voted against uh, gay marriage, um, and so like the, it was part of the the chain of of things that got appealed up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, actually, you have no right to vote against gay marriage as a state. Um, you had it's constitutionally 
uh, infirm for you to do so. And that's how we ended up with gay marriage. Now, like there were, you know, Massachusetts voted in favor of it. There were all kinds of problems with full faith and credit. Like, does Alabama have to recognize gay marriage? The people who married in in um, in Massachusetts, right? There was this whole like unstable period in the middle of it. But ultimately, that was decided by law. We lost the vote. So the people who voted for gay marriage lost in California, even in California, um, by by a not small margin in a year where it was a wave Democratic year. So a lot of people voted for Obama and voted against. Right. I mean, the fact that it made it to the Supreme Court is a reflection of like the temperature in the country. It's not that didn't, you know, it wouldn't have come to the Supreme Court at like a period where that was not a conversation that people were very actively engaged in. And the polling is not it's not quite as steep as you're describing it as there. There was a steady building of support that led to this becoming an issue that led to it coming onto the ballot in different states that led to it going to the Supreme Court. Well, okay, of, of course, there was a minority of people who thought that this was and, and that the fact that they were a relatively beleaguered minority um, right up until 2010. I mean, there, there was a sharp uptick, right? So once it became legal and once there was an institutional endorsement, Many, many people change their minds. I would call that an institutional opportunity for people who are gay that they could now take advantage of to become mainstream and that that is how it was viewed as their ability to participate in mainstream, regular, you know, to get out of this LGBTQ corner and become part of mainstream life. And they did take advantage of that in a way that had a deep impact for a lot of Christians. I mean, I, I, I don't. I think that these things change over time. Exactly. In part, yes, there is. There is. A, I guess I have a much more um, classical conception of this. That that uh, public opinion, yes, is is ground up, but is is also very much shaped top down uh, by by different. And it could be a different story for different um, issues. But there is always. The elite are called the elite because they have disproportionate influence over the direction of the country. And you recognize this in every other way, right? Because you're fighting against that influence in, in so many ways and in a more uniform way than, say, I would. Because I recognize it in terms of policy, of course, because you have to belong to an institution to drive policy. I totally reject it when it comes to issues of values and issues of culture. Yeah, you're right. There's yeah, a difference so, there I mean, in my mind, a very big difference. I, I, I don't know. I, I think law shapes culture all the time. And, and I have any number of, of examples of this and institutions shape culture all the time. And I think to return it, let's let's close by returning it to, to anti-Semitism. I, I worry that uh, that on this, as on many other things like patriotism, like gay marriage, like uh, uh, any number of, of other uh, things that that this will not hold over time, even the American instinct, which is very good, um, and I agree with you, has been unusually or remarkably uh, kind and, and good. And sometimes uh, in the face of, of um, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's been it's been so generous as to uh, to cause liberal Jews to come up with with uh, what are essentially conspiracy theory explanations for why it is that that Americans don't hate Jews like like many other peoples around the world. But um, I, I don't think there's, you know, I think there there has always been a, a power, even in culture for for elites. And there are a lot of the things that I look around 
and I see like actually the work of of American elites since primarily the 1960s um, culturally in actually transforming some of the exact things that that I most admire about American culture and I'm most proud of to be a part of are are very much transformed over time by that. And patriotism is just one of them. And I fear anti-Semitism will be also one of those things that's transformed over time. We're going to have to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, Dennis Prager, uh, who's one of my favorite uh, talk show, sort of radio talk show hosts in the pre-podcast era, um, always said that it's better to have clarity uh, than agreement. And and I think that this has been very clarifying in the sense that uh, I know where we agree and I know where we disagree. And I think, uh, you know, obviously, um, I think, I think you've, you've done a great job of, of, uh, defending your, your point of view here. I've, I've tried to <laughs> defend mine. Um, but, uh, I think it's been, it's been a very clarifying discussion. So thank you so much, Batya, for, for coming on, on High Noon. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, and IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.